Hello, I'm Jeremy Lair. Welcome to The Money Movement. Very excited to have a repeat guest, Brian Brooks. Joining us today, Brian's currently CEO of Bitfury Group and uh, a storied career in many dimensions of the financial industry, but very much in the crypto industry as well as a principal, I think, having a lot of influence. So super excited to have you for another conversation. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm a recidivist. Back again. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So lots we can talk about. I want to start actually, I think, maybe taking some perspective. Maybe you could actually just for the audience as well, just sort of go back a little bit in time. When did you enter into this market? What did you think at the time? Like legit, like what was going on in your head about this? What was happening then? And I think that'll be a good, a good framing for people. And then I'll go from there. It's a great question. And I think given the conversation we're going to have, it's, it's not just background. It's like, this is what the whole discussion's about, right? Is you began your career in tech. I began my career in banking. And I had been doing banking a really long time around a lot of really troubled institutions. So, you know, I represented a lot of institutions that, you know, you could say that they caused the financial crisis or that they were victims of the financial crisis. But I saw a lot of what was wrong with traditional finance. And I was part of the turnaround teams at IndyMac Bank after it failed and at Fannie Mae after it failed. And so I feel like for years and years of my career, I saw the things that did not work in traditional finance. And there were a lot of reasons for that. At a certain point when I was working at, at Fannie Mae, I discovered fintech. Had never really focused on crypto yet. I mean, and when th was, this when was 2014. This? 2014, you know? right. And in 2014, people knew about Bitcoin, but they didn't really know about anything else right. at that point. I mean, Ethereum was kind of a germinal idea and yeah. nothing else existed. So my thought was, oh my God, it turns out that fintech can, you know, fairly significantly improve financial services. It can shorten application cycle times. The, right. it, the user interface was easier. It could maybe make banking 30% better, right. I was thinking. There's the, the uh, what I like to call the fintech 1.0 is sort of lipstick on a pig. Yeah, exactly. And it could be really attractive lipstick or less attractive lipstick, but the pig was still the pig. Yeah. Then... You know, I had this moment where uh, a former law partner of mine became the general counsel of a big crypto exchange, and he gave me Michael Casey and Paul Vigna's book to read, which is kind of yeah. like a lot of people start with that book. And it was a real eye-opener, and I watched what he was working on, and I saw what was going on. And then one of my former bank partners became CFO of Coinbase. And she called me up one day, and she said, you know, there's, there's something much bigger than fintech happening here. This is not a lipstick on a pig. This is we're changing the pig out for a swan. And it's a totally different animal, <laughs> if you want to have, you know, more of that metaphor. But it's a complete replacement of the underlying architecture of finance yeah. with something that's not just a little bit better. It's completely different. Yeah. And when I showed up at Coinbase, which is when you and I first met, yeah. um, that's when I realized the assumptions we've had for literally 500 years around payments, credit right. extension, deposit taking, those assumptions were based yeah. on old, old technology that's no longer state of the art. Yeah. The assumptions are outdated. Yeah. This is actually during a time actually, which was kind of a bear market, right? So Super we've, market, we've right. gone through these cycles <clears throat> of understanding, of adoption, of the technology capabilities. And I remember back in, in 2014, when, when our first commercial product launched and you know, everyone was always asking like, when is this going to go mainstream? What's it going to take yeah. to go mainstream? Yeah. And I had a whole speech about that, that we give. And one of the big ideas that we were focused on is sort of the fiat world and how do you basically, you know, give fiat the superpowers of crypto and, and so on, which we can come back to. But, but um, that time though, like I'm interested just as you dealt with say, 
your peers from your existing, you know, the existing industry, right? Traditional finance or, or policy peers. I knew, you know, you spent a lot of time in DC, obviously, but like, what did people say to you when you were like, I'm joining this Bitcoin exchange? I mean, essentially, which is kind of what Coinbase that, that's was at what the time. I joined. It was like, yeah. yeah. So what, 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 did, what did people say to you and what did you say to them? They thought I'd lost my mind. They, they, they really did. And I'll tell you the exact words that were told to me by a, a friend of mine who we both know. I won't name him here, but a very famous, very influential person. Yeah. He told me that um, he said uh, Bitcoin is only good for speculation and illicit activity. Yeah. And there was no way this was a good move and I'd have to be crazy to do it. Th this was yeah. just about four years out from Coinbase's $88 billion IPO. Yeah. Right, was that that's all this is. And I'll tell you what I really struggled with for a while, which was people like that person, yeah. but a lot of other friends, they would say, what's it good for? What Show me use cases right. and everything. And for the first year, I really struggled with that. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and I remember actually USDC being one of the first real, you know, if you want to take use cases as an idea, one of the first real use cases yeah. I saw. But I learned something more important as I went through that journey. journey. Yeah. And, and what it was, was when you're building a network it doesn't matter what the use cases are. The use cases will come later. Yeah. Like the fact that we didn't know in the early 90s that one day Amazon would be out there right. is irrelevant. Yeah. Networks There's the principles. Platforms. There's the principle of you know these open protocols, what right. they could enable, right. that people could connect to them easily. It was and permissionless. Entrepreneurs build on exactly. that. And you don't have exactly. to know what they'll build yeah. to know that once you build a platform, they will build stuff. Yeah. That's right. what I didn't realize on day one. Yeah. That is uh, definitely foundational for how we think about stuff. So that's interesting, just like, again, kind of like g going back in time and, and maybe just to juxtapose, like fast forward, here we are, we're at, you know, Bitcoin Miami 2022. You were just remarking to me before, you know, there's JP Morgan people around, uh, big auditing firms are throwing cocktail parties. Uh, it's in a different, um, I mean, there's still like crazy ass stuff going on all over the place too. We're throwing a big party at a Versace mansion. Speaking uh, of crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of unexpected things. But like when you think about that, that juxtaposition, I don't know how many years later it is, four or five, whatever it is. What do you think now? Where do you think we are now in that? And do you still have people saying, what's it good for? What are the use cases? This is really just for speculation and illicit activity. Not at all. That, that, that's the crazy <laughs> thing. And now the only people I hear from are politicians looking for contributions because they think all of us have made all this money. So it's a totally different <laughs> thing. But look, you know, I, I sort of have two thoughts about where we are today. So one thought is the reason all the bankers are here and the reason that all the accounts are here is because the use cases have now emerged. There's now two point whatever trillion dollars of assets sitting around here, but the transaction volume, the throughput is many, many trillions of dollars, yeah. right? Yeah. And we've done three trillion dollars plus of USDC transactions. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and and while USDC is probably the most important stablecoin inside of DeFi, it is only one token and only yeah. one area yeah. of crypto. That's right. not talking about necessarily all of Everything the else. other sort of sort of applications going on. What it tells me is. My belief in 2019 was correct, which is there was a network, uh, several networks built. No one knew what was going to happen for a while. Yeah. And then thousands of people came to build. And that leads me to the second viewpoint I have right now, yeah. which is you look at the 40 or 50,000 people here. It's like a Cambrian explosion of activity. It's unbelievable. And, yeah. you know, a lot of these species in this Cambrian explosion will probably die out, but some of them are going to be humans. You know, I mean, like there are going to be a number of different yeah. things that are going to permanently yeah. change the way we interact right. with each other, yeah. not just in finance, by the way. I, I've had the vantage point of like being part of both building and watching adoption by entrepreneurs and creators of multiple successive kind of waves of internet technology platforms. And it's sort of 
the same story over and over again, right? You had enormous number of people who got excited about building apps for mobile phones. I mean, even before the iPhone, right? There was just, you know, there was BlackBerry and there was Nokia and there was NTT Docomo in Japan and there was all this sort of stuff. You had these successive waves and, and the technology was sort of capable of a certain thing at a certain time. But even when it was a little bit raw, not such a great user experience. Like the entrepreneurs were there, the builders were there, and there were major things that kind of came through, and there was a lot that that didn't. And yep. like you have these sort of successive waves, and and sort of what what you're sort of describing now is this. You know, you could call this like the third wave of crypto adoption. Although people who've been at this you know since 2010 would say maybe it's the fourth or whatever, but like the third wave, and it just gets bigger each time. The capacity of these networks gets more powerful, the bandwidth, so to speak, is is wider, and there's just more there. And so I would agree with you, like the we're seeing a lot of use cases, they're exploding actually. But I actually think, you know, most of the creativity is yet to come. We're still in the early days. And even just looking at like, you know, digital dollars, programmable dollars on the internet, like people are just scratching the surface. DeFi is only like three years old. And like that's an enormous undertaking. So there's just a lot to build. Well, look, there, there's also, when you think about it, there's like the macro environment that affects the way this is going to get built. So, yeah. so you know, you're, you're talking about the various iterations of the original internet. And one of the things that you talked about was mobile phone applications yeah. even before the iPhone. The iPhone itself was a precondition for much of what we currently understand. Yeah. And it's not clear that in crypto, the iPhone's been built yet. No, like exactly. What, what is exactly. that thing that sits yeah. in everybody's pocket? Yeah. You no, the, the killer oh, user yeah. experience app right, doesn't right, yet right. exist. Yeah. It, it's like the yeah. delivery layer is not there yet. Yeah. The protocol layers exist, the application layers are there, but the delivery mechanism, yeah. which is the ubiquitous, yeah. every person has it in their pocket. I mean, the phones are there, but that may not, in fact, be the way this works in the future. So that's that's one thing. But the other thing is... The macro environment, I think, is is really, really critical because right now, I think, there are various countries that are charting radically different courses about how to think about this. And so if you really do believe that some of what we're talking about is the future of money, yeah. it matters if the U.S., and the developing world diverge, or if the G20 yeah. or the G7 this is, let's this say, is separate. Geoeconomics, from, geopolitical correct, issues. Correct, so, correct. I, this is actually great because one of the questions I want to ask you is very much anchored in this. So let's pretend you're sitting here and you've got, you know, Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Secretary Yellen, you know, maybe Jay Powell. You got that group and they're asking you, what do we do about this? How do we think about this? What should the United States be doing and why? To me, there's an easy answer, okay? And I would frame it this way. So, so people usually launch that question by saying, the dollar's dominance is under question. China's adopting a CBDC. There are principal geopolitical adversary. We better get on that so that they right. don't own the world of CBDCs. Right. Okay, that's the usual way the question is phrased. I've got a good answer for that. Uh, I, I think it's the same. I think we may have invented the answer together. The answer is we never win by out China in China. Right. Like, like the way we developed the Soviet Union or beat the Soviet Union is we didn't build our own five year plan. Right. They had a five year central planning approach to the economy, and we unleashed rock and roll music and markets. Yeah. And markets are what beat them. So, my basic view is. When you see China and that part of the world trying to consolidate around centralized government control of the payment system, of investment, right. and, and all of that activity, we'll never be as good at that as they are. That is not in our DNA. What's right. in our DNA is- Nor our, is it in our value system. It's certainly not in our value system. Not yet. And to me, though, value systems- Not system, yet is look, a good point. <laughs> I mean, value systems yeah. evolve from real systems. Yeah. So it, it's sort of like we're not more morally good people than Soviets or- 
people in yeah. mainland China. But we are people who have grown up in a system that has civil rights and free speech and checks and balances on the government. We have all of those things, and that's why we're free. It's not because we're better. Right. It's because we have a system that does that. The financial system mm-hmm. is as important to our freedom as any of those other things. Once you start creating a financial system that government officials can control that way, right. they eventually will. Slippery slope. They eventually will. Right. We right. might be slower than others, but we will so, be there. So this gets to like a heart of the matter, right? Which is, again, imagining that conversation that you're having. And you know, it's sort of, you're thinking about the United States, and this could be any modern country. I, I'm just using the United States because we're sitting here in the United States and, and you know, we're, we're, I think, also focused on policy issues here. But here we have crypto as a technology. We have the public internet as this intermediating, in a sense, software, autonomous software, the public internet, open source protocols. We have this, this whole amalgam of stuff that has been built grassroots from the bottom up by creators that you know of, of various sorts. It's not controlled by anyone per se, although we can discuss that, but it's not the way that the financial system has been built historically. And it looks really scary. It looks out of control. It looks like people can do whatever the hell they want. There's all this risk. People are gonna get hurt. It's, we don't even understand the systemic risks. They're going to explode in our face. You know, there's just this, there's a lot of fear. But at the center of that is this kind of, can you have a financial system and an economic system that is a public good on the public internet and getting kind of grappling with that? How do you think, you know, leaders of our country should be grappling with that idea? I mean, look, every generation goes through this exact same debate, okay? And the debate is, we, we have this natural human belief that the world is a dangerous place, and if only there was a wise person or a wise government that could protect us from all harms out there, then ideally we wouldn't have all the chaos that you just described. That's what the Soviet Union looked like. They had a wise group of people. They had a central planning commission, and that commission decided how many pairs of shoes would be manufactured that year. So there were no shoes that went to waste. Now, there weren't enough shoes either. Okay. But they decided this year we're going to have this many shoes of this color, and that's all the shoes there would ever be. And the wise men had decided... And what we have in this country, and it's true whether you're talking about money or whether you're talking about goods and services or art or entertainment or whatever, okay? The way that a free society works is it's brash and bold and it takes risks and allows people who take the right risks to profit from those risks, which then aligns incentives around the next generation of risk takers. And that is why we have all of this. That's why we're sitting in this beautiful place in a developed world society is because we allowed all the signals of a bunch of free people to express themselves in markets. So when I think about the future of money and and the new financial system we're building, you know, all these wacky people here in Miami with us, what they're doing, okay, is they're each expressing the desire of a core group of market participants, their customers or their users who say, this is what I want. Now, not all those needs will be met because some of them are too niche. But at the end of the day, what comes out of the system you're talking about is a system that provides people what they want in a pluralistic society. It's a world where some people want to use MasterCard and some people want to use Visa, but some people still use Discover, and that's okay. We don't tell them they can't, right? Some people want to smoke cigars on the golf course, and other people think it gives you cancer. We let them do that. Finance is going to be no different from that. So if you take your business, we could have the government build one form of a digitized dollar, and right. that would be like the financial Maginot line. Right. You know, right or wrong, that'd be all we had. Yeah. Or 
you can have a whole bunch of developers building different kinds of programmable dollars for different uses yep. adapted to people's preferences. That's what markets do. And yeah, some people fail when that happens. Yep. But then the consumers who are king in a market or economy, the consumers win because somebody built what they wanted. Yeah. So I, I think that the message in a sense is open competitive markets, the creativity of developers and creators. Absolutely. It's sort of the same thing that breathe, breathe life into the creativity of software on the internet is it's sort of breathing life into the financial system. 100%. I mean, Jeremy, do you think that we would have something, a product as beautiful as the iPhone 13 if the FCC built smartphones? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. We, we, mean, we would be living with a phone yeah. that was designed 25 yeah. years ago and it would never and, change. And similarly, the FAA does not make jet engines and does not fly airplanes. Um, yeah. and, and so I think that's right. So, which does actually come back to there are really important policy issues. There are regulatory issues. There are fundamental risks that at some level you can't just leave alone, right? You know, someone could say issue a stable coin that's backed by uh, junk, you know, Chinese commercial paper or uh, that would who, knows, happen. who knows who knows what could happen. Right. No, the, in all seriousness, like there's risk. There's lots of risks that can that can happen. And, and so there are sort of these assurances that are needed. You ran the OCC for a period of time and, you know, your job was to supervise 75% of the banks in the United States. So you, obviously you've got a good grasp of what's involved there. And I guess maybe that's a, you know, and, and we, we both just testified to Congress uh, in, the, in the prior months. I think, you know, my impression is there's a lot of progress being made right now in DC. There's a lot of progress in terms of the amount of awareness, the amount of education, the understanding. This has become a, a set of issues that people are really engaging on. You're seeing real legislative proposals. It's a very different in environment. I'd love to hear you, A, just react to that, and then B, you know, what do you think are, are going to be the most important kind of policy things that can get done, that actually can get done on a bipartisan basis in this Congress or maybe the next Congress? Great questions. Uh, unfortunately, I think they're two really different questions. So in terms of where we are broadly politically in this country, clearly different. When you and I first started doing this together five years ago, we would show up and we always got these, we never got hostile receptions. We got blank stares. Nobody even right. knew what we were talking about. And it was a waste of their time because we weren't Facebook or whatever. Yeah, right, okay. right, right. It's very, very different today. So, so now I think there is a broad consensus and increasingly a bipartisan consensus, which wouldn't have been clear a year yeah. ago, but increasingly a bipartisan consensus that something important is being built here. We're not 100% sure what it is, but it is important that America not be left out of it. And so creating a framework that allows the core innovations to flourish, you know, is important. So, you know, examples like, you know, Patrick McHenry's bill being co-sponsored with the Democrat to fix yeah. the tax reporting issue in the infrastructure bill. That's a big yeah. deal. A lot Democrat, of bipartisan things. A lot of bipartisanship. My prediction would be that Senator Toomey's stablecoin bill that came out yesterday will attract some Democratic support, yeah. and certainly on the House side, but even, yeah. even in the Senate I mean, side. I think we'll, we'll see, <laughs> I think we'll see a proposal on stablecoin that is from <clears throat> the ranking member and the, I, I think chair, true. and the chairwoman. I think you're right about that. Having said that, the way the Congress works, as I learned when I was in government, is it's not actually 100 senators and 435 congressmen voting on things. It's really six or eight members of leadership deciding what gets to come for a vote. And regrettably, there are a couple of people, mostly in the Senate, not the House, yeah. but there are a couple of very senior Democrats in the Senate who have decided right. that crypto is a problem. It's a problem. And I, and I have a theory of why that is. And I don't think it's an ideological theory, but I, it's just my observation of what the animating principles of the two sides are. 
here's the way I describe it. Mm -hmm. So for the last 100 years, but really 500 years, all of finance in the West has been dominated by banks. Banks intermediated yep. between governments, which authorized the money, yep. and consumers who used the money. And there was this unstable, unholy sort of balance where this thing called a bank sat in the middle of it. And that was always unstable, persisted for a while, but it was like the aggregator of money, like the post office. All yep. letters went to a central repository before they got farmed out. There is now, now that we don't need that technologically, because you don't need to aggregate all the letters right. you can send emails, you also don't need to aggregate all the dollars yep. you can have DeFi. So there is now a significant fight over whether we're going to leave the banking model in favor of a government model mm -hmm. or leave the banking model in favor of a user-controlled model. Yep. There are some people who are mostly one generation older than you and me, Democrats. Mm -hmm. And it's not very many of them. I think most Democrats are on our yep. side, okay? But there are a couple yep. of people of an older generation whose belief is governments are more trustworthy right. than people. It's a risky world. People are fraudsters or people are not sophisticated to make their own decisions. And they're trying very, very hard to push for central bank digital currencies and sure. Fed accounts. Postal banking. Postal banking. Whereas everybody here in Miami is trying to move toward a user-controlled financial system where yeah. we make our own determinations. Yeah. That is the civil rights issue of the 21st century, Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So I have a little story, a Circle story, which is um, one of the board members who you know well at Circle is Raj Date. Mm -hmm. And Raj was recruited by Senator Elizabeth Warren to come in and, after the financial crisis, design a new regulatory agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And, and so, you know, th through that, uh, I, I've had a chance to get to know Senator Warren a bit. And, you know, it was interesting, years ago, in probably, I don't know, 2014 or 2015, I had an opportunity to, to talk to Senator Warren. And what was interesting is I talked about the ways in which um, this technology could empower more people, provide greater inclusivity of, of financial access. I talked about how there was an enormous amount of rent-seeking that went on in the financial system, that went on with banks in particular, and that there was an opportunity to eliminate a lot of that rent-seeking, to return more value to the real economy. And she was incredibly animated and excited about that. And I feel like somehow, and I think as you kind of fast forward now, where, where Senator Warren is just outright hostile mm -hmm. to this industry, I feel like, you know, you can kind of look at, okay, the vantage point, what's the under, what are the underlying assumptions as you've just sort of talked about as a piece of it. But you always have to kind of come back to also, like, what could the creators and the entrepreneurs and the innovators and others be doing differently to affect that dialogue? And you're now starting to see that. You've got Cory Booker coming out, who's an important influential Senate Democrat, who's really embraced this. You've got mayors of cities that are Democrats that are in places where financial inclusion and democratization and getting a fair deal for people is a major issue, getting behind you know, this industry, this technology, et cetera. And the question is, is, you know, on the one hand, you hear the criticism, and in fact, it's often the the individuals who are called to testify, the academics mostly, who are called to testify to these Senate hearings and who are saying, it's all hype, there's no financial inclusion, it's just a bunch of people getting rich, it's all scams, people are getting hurt. I mean, that, like that's the narrative. DeFi is actually really not decentralized. Like all, all these things are there. And in any of these things, right, there's sort of truth in every, uh, there's some truth in all these statements, right? But they're obviously, it's not a holistic view. 
but it seems like there's this gap. And it seems like what you're, you know, you're describing in some senses, maybe what is, what looks like, you know, here's from a policymaking perspective, a, is this an impenetrable wall? Is there like a, you know, they're not going to bring it to the Senate. They're not going to bring it. They're not going to bring things forward because it's just too big of a wall. But is there a way to break through that in reality, like in reality, like demonstrating the ways in which this is really improving people's lives and, in, and yep. improving access and in, improving other things. And that to me is that the, that is the essential issue. Yeah, right? yeah, 100%. So look, so three quick comments. I mean, first of all, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, it's a difference of generation. Mm-hmm. So there will come a time when the people who are really in positions of leadership will have grown up with the internet at least, even yeah. if not with crypto. And and I really do believe a big part of it is yeah. there's the LBJ generation and then there's more like the Bill Clinton, Barack Obama generation. Yeah. This generation is a strong government will protect us generation. Yeah. This is much more of an empowerment generation. So, th- so you have that. The second thing I would argue is the wrong people are doing the talking in these in these advocacy. So, like for example, sure. you know, I work at a company where one of our businesses is Bitcoin mining. No Bitcoin miner is ever going to persuade Congress that Bitcoin is good for the environment. Doesn't matter how true that might be or what the incentives are, what the analysis shows. Doesn't matter because the Bitcoin miner is the guy getting rich on Bitcoin mining. The person who's going to convince them Bitcoin mining is good for the environment is the solar farm developer who says I can't build more solar without Bitcoin mining. Right. But as long as it's me, you know, yeah. it's got to be that guy. And it's the same thing here yeah. where the people whose lives are being bettered right. need to be doing the talking. Not you and not me. Yeah. It needs to be yeah. the people who are actually benefiting from yeah. it, the, the, the retail yeah. user. And the last thing I will just say is there is this other, and we might as well just call it what it is. There is a foundational disagreement in the society, and I would say it's roughly 50-50, between whether the most important thing government can do is to protect us from risk, mm-hmm. which is a legitimate view, not mine, but it's a legitimate view, Versus those who believe the the role of the government is to empower us to better ourselves, which is my view. This entails some risk. This is not risky, but it does entail a very gray and sclerotic future, which I'm not excited about. So the question is, which side are you on? Yeah, I think the other dimension of this is we saw this with the Internet in early generations where there are huge amounts of risk, right? How could I trust that uh, I could put, you know, my personal information into a website? It's proven to be a, a vexing issue, actually. Right. Well, right, originally, right. you couldn't, right? There was, there was no could, S in HTTPS. There was no SSL, etc. But but even even things like I'm on this website where someone is purporting to sell me these baseball cards or these Beanie Babies or whatever. Here's your credit card number, and it's eBay. How do I know I'm going to get that? Yeah. Or you know, the idea that. I'm going to open up an app and like some stranger is going to pull up and I'm going to get in their car or that like I'm I'm going to like put my apartment on the web and like people are going to come and they're going to party in there like every other weekend because I'm going to earn some income. Like risk is inherent in the Internet. It's inherent in all these things. And in the past, regulation was what provided that safety, the taxi medallion, or, you know, a retail outlet that had buyers and that vetted product suppliers and that sort of figured out, like, these are these are good products, we're going to put them in our store, versus an open marketplace, like an Amazon marketplace or a, a an eBay. But we now see that, you know, software, data, reputation, all these things, community, wisdom of the crowd, these models actually can provide greater signaling and provide a better way to manage risk than regulations that are rigid and and can't think through every dynamic. And this plays out in so many ways. Wikipedia is just radically better than Encyclopedia Britannica. Like no one makes encyclopedias anymore. Why would you ever make an encyclopedia? Because you can use 
the, the wisdom of the crowd and, and all this. And, and so I think in the financial system, that's just a very foreign concept. The idea that you're going to have, I mean, self-regulatory is not a foreign concept. Even FINRA itself, theoretically, is sort of a self-regulatory organization. And, I mean, and, sort of. Yeah, so, sort of, <laughs> right. But there are definitely, and card associations and other things. But like in this area, it seems like one of the critical things that is needed is, you know, there's a big challenge around the risk of fraud or criminal abuse or anti-money laundering, et cetera. Well, you've got breakthroughs in, in blockchain analytics, or you've got innovators coming up with ways to do decentralized digital identity and solve the problem by building on what is possible technically. And you're going to just, you know, the industry can solve these problems way faster than any regulator can solve these problems. And, and, and it's almost like the industry needs to focus more attention on let's solve for the risks. And, and that's happening organically. There's, you know, insurance on DeFi protocols and, you know, there's lots of things happening there. But it's part of the answer, not just like convincing someone, which is sort of what we were talking about yeah. with policy, but, but actually just like builders building and, and solving these problems. Yeah, well, well I, I, so, so you use a really interesting sentence. You say, let's solve for the risks. And, and there are two pieces of that, of that statement, you know, that kind of bear on, bear on your question. One is, what is the appropriate risk appetite of society in a pluralistic society where we all choose our own adventure? You know, you smoke cigars, I don't smoke cigars, or you like to go uh, skydiving and I hate to go skydiving. So a big part of it is how do you define the risk and how do you empower people to, within some reasonable parameters, make their own choices? I think if there's anything we've learned from the last two years, not everybody has the same risk appetite. Some people really embraced, you know, lockdowns and masks, and some people really resisted lockdowns and masks and weren't okay with it. And we made a choice that was highly risk intolerant, and that didn't work for about half the country. It's true in financial services and a lot of other activities as well. So the first question is, how do you define it? And then there's a question of how do you solve it? And that's the interesting part. So my thesis is all human beings are fallible. It doesn't matter if they've been confirmed by the Senate. It doesn't mean if they're running the banking agency. Everybody is fallible. What is my evidence for this? Well, the biggest regulated bank in the U.S. financial system still had the London whale trade. Mm -hmm. The collection of the biggest banks in the United States still made all those mortgages that caused the financial crisis. Yeah, sure. I mean, regulators are human beings and they miss things. Okay, so ninety-eight percent of money laundering happens in the in the regulated totally, bank. Totally, because there are only thirty-four hundred examiners at the OCC. They can right. only see so much fraud. They miss a lot of stuff. They're human right. beings. They're yeah. doing their best, but whatever. Versus. Computers don't make mistakes. Now, they can be, they only do what they're programmed to do, but once they're programmed to do something, they do it the same way every single time. And so if you have an algorithm, like you know, I think about it in my world, if you have an algorithm that's allocating credit, it's going to allocate credit according to the algorithm every single time. It's not going to choose between you whether you're white or black. It's not going to choose, it's not going to make fine distinctions like, well, you almost have a 700 FICO score, but not quite. It's going to treat every single person at the same time and do it all the time and not make mistakes. Now, it will be programmed with limitations of its programmer, for sure. sure. But my theory is the world that we're headed toward, which is a decentralized automated system, is likely to have almost all and maybe all of the good features of the current system with some enhancements, but far fewer of the bad features because it won't involve either human graft, human yeah. negligence, or human bias. Yeah. And that's, to me, what algorithmic finance is all about, and that's what crypto's project is. Yeah. Maybe an interesting thing to pivot off of, and it ties, ties into some of the policy stuff too, but which is solving the problem of identity in de decentralized finance and in Web3 more broadly. And you know, as you know, we helped develop and, and have launched Verity, which is uh, you know, a decentralized identity protocol and, and standard. You know, I, I think 
this is a great example where in the existing financial system, when I, as a user, am using a financial product and then go transfer money to another party or use my credit card or do these things, my personal information is getting shared over and over and over again. And there's like these honeypots of data of my personal information yep. everywhere. Privacy is not preserved. It's actually violated over and over and over again. People merchandise that data. And so we have, we have some, some real issues there. Talk about can crypto itself, this is a place where can we improve upon even just the way in which financial crimes enforcement happens, but do that in a way where it's actually preserving privacy and providing greater security and other things than the existing system. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, look, this is just, to me, it's a species of what I was talking about a second ago, where humans are fallible, but algorithms right. always do what you program them to do. So, you know, in the olden days, meaning like yesterday, if you went into a bank branch to open an account, the way that they do KYC on you is they collect your passport and your social security number and a set of other things, all of which can be faked. Mm -hmm. And a certain percentage of the time, they are, in fact, faked for the purpose of money laundering. You hear all the time about some long-deceased person's social security number being used to open a bank account or some child being, you yeah. know, the, whatever. That, that happens all the time. There's a certain error rate, and then there's a certain criminality rate, and that just happens. One of the things that decentralized solutions offer, and, and so I was so excited to read when you guys launched Verity, is the idea that if you have enough observations of a person's behavior, you can probabilistically figure out who they are, or at least whether they're a good person or a bad person. You know, you have no evidence that this wallet, after a thousand observations, ever transacted with a flagged wallet in the ecosystem or whatever that is. And you can do so in a way that does not require disclosure of your name, address, right. and phone number, right? right? I mean, all I need to know is Jeremy Lair's wallet address of XYZ corresponds to these other characteristics that meet KYC standards. And it doesn't matter that it's Jeremy Allaire, as I like to say. It only matters that it isn't Osama bin Laden. And I can tell that probabilistically inside of something. So the promise of that, with a very high statistical probability of correctness, is another breakthrough. Because you're right, I don't want my number sitting in the Expedia data, or my, rather these, the Experian database right, is going to go get hacked. Yeah. We can use cryptography to prove things. Correct, um, correct. And, and Without can, sharing the underlying right. data, you can just exactly. say the, the, the algorithm has reached a green result. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, totally. A lot to build there. I'd love to just hear also just, you know, what are some of the things that you're personally working on that you're most excited about right now? Well, I'm working on, on a bunch of things. So first of all, you know, at Bitfury, we have a super interesting collection of businesses that are sort of put together to deploy the learnings of Bitcoin across other parts of the crypto ecosystem. So the funny history of the company is, you know, it began as the first industrial scale Bitcoin miner. I remember well. And from there, they decided early on that regular microchips did not work and specialty ASICs needed to be designed. And so we got into that business. And then we figured out that a huge amount of energy in Bitcoin mining is caused by cooling costs. And so we created immersion cooling systems that is now the largest immersion cooling company in the world, which then led to this and this and this. So there's a holding company model that we take, which is basically what are all of the adjacencies that make the Bitcoin ecosystem work? Mm -hmm. And how can we build out and commercialize those things and create the right incentives to make the Bitcoin blockchain stable and useful? Mm -hmm. So it's a really fun place to work. And one of the businesses, you know, has an adjacency that's uh, kind of correlated to what you're doing at Verity. It's, we have a business called Crystal, which is one of the largest blockchain analytics platforms in, uh, in Europe. Super cool. But away from Bitfury, Jeremy, there's some other things I'm looking at and, and working on that are really, really interesting. So you may have read I went on the board of Voyager, which is yep. the other big publicly traded crypto exchange. And the ongoing challenges of crypto exchanges, figuring out how to deliver what their customers want without falling afoul of sure. consumer protection and SEC rules. 
the line that we need clarity has been true for five years and it's still yeah. true today. Like if, if I have an earned product, you know, whether Coinbase is doing it or Voyager is doing it or anybody else is doing it, and my customers are going to earn income on their crypto with no risk to them, what is the policy reason why the government doesn't want me to do that? I mean, who are we protecting when we bring that? Like, these are issues that have to be solved in the world of exchanges. Or I also recently joined the bank, the board of Protego Bank, which is one yep. of the three crypto national banks, hopefully soon to be four. I'm hoping that you're going to make it through the process. But, but one of the three crypto national banks. And this is, you know, when we talk about the distribution layer, the bank charter may be the iPhone of mm -hmm. crypto. It is the ubiquitous mm -hmm. thing that allows you to operate nationally across yeah. state lines without limitation of activity and all these things. And I think the ability to be like the banking as a service partner for a lot of parts yeah. of crypto is a key mission that is necessary for the area to grow. Yeah. And obviously, I'm advising a bunch of projects out there in this space as well, some decentralized exchange projects, some token projects, and other things. As I say, it's the Cambrian explosion. And what I find really fun, and I know you do too, is meeting the young innovators who have the little bright kernel of an idea that we can help nurture and grow. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, so. it's amazing. We haven't talked a lot about it, but you know, we, we, uh, we started Circle Ventures uh, late last year, and we've... Uh, I think we've invested in 65 companies now and growing. But it's it's interesting just the sheer volume of of creative ideas, of entrepreneurs, of projects, of technologies. It's unbelievable. It is a Cambrian explosion. It yep. is it is it is truly astounding. And be, being here this week obviously is a pretty pretty interesting touch point on that. There's a lot of measures for growth, right? We've got, you know, how many nodes are on a network, uh, how many transactions that are happening. Yep. There's, you know, how much volume of trading, you know, how many active wallets, like there's all these different measures that, that people have. There's clearly like, you know, GitHub repositories, how right. many, how much code is being kind of written right. in, in this space. And then there's just like, just the intangible, which is like, how many just people are there who are doing stuff and just like what you see and you, you see you feeling I, that this week here developers on networks another amazing thing yeah but yeah when seventy thousand people fly to miami and most of them aren't working in crypto yeah they're here because this is the vanguard of adoption and they want to meet people like you yeah you know that's the amazing thing is they're willing to buy a plane ticket and come out here because they see that this is the new new thing yeah it's awesome well it's as usual wonderful to have a great conversation glad we could do this me too and, uh I know uh, you will be back again uh, <laughs> at some point and uh, really appreciate it. Outstanding. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Brian.